Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In book three of his poem on the nature of things, Lucretius is not only going to present his own Epicurean doctrines on the nature of the mind or spirit and its relation to the body, he's also going to criticize a number of what he considers to be erroneous positions that many people, including other philosophers, even other philosophers that the Epicureans draw upon, like Democritus, have fallen fallen into when it comes to understanding the relationship between the, the mind and spirit and the body. And the first one that he talks about is actually quite interesting. He tells us that some people think that the sentience of the mind is not lodged in any particular part of the body, but is a vital condition of the body, what the Greeks call a harmony of, we could say, the elements of the body or the parts of the body. So and this is a, an idea that goes very far back. We see Plato having Socrates combat this idea in his dialogues. So there presumably were a lot of people, not just in Plato's time and not just in the time of Epicurus and in the time of Lucretius who are holding this position, but throughout time, there's, there's a lot of people who want to say that the mind is ultimately what we could call an epiphenomenon of the body. The body is doing certain things and that makes the mind the way that it is. And we see a lot of people saying things like that with, with the brain these days. And Lucretius is going to say that's actually not going to work. And the argument that he gives for this is kind of interesting because it does seem to be in a little bit of tension with some of the other arguments that he's going to give in the next few pages or hundreds of lines. So he points out that the body or the mind can be doing badly. And he uses the example of illness while the other one isn't. So he says the visible body is obviously ill while in some other unseen part we are enjoying ourselves. So if what's going on with the mind or the spirit is just a reflection of the harmony, or in this case, disharmony of the bodily parts. If the body's not doing good, the mind ought to not be doing good as well. And he says that no less often the reverse happens. One who is sick at heart enjoys bodily well-being. So somebody might be upset over the loss of a job or a breakup or the death of a family member or something like that. Physically, they're, they're just fine. Their body's in perfect harmony with itself. In terms of the mind or the spirit, they're unhappy, right? So this, he says, should disabuse us of the idea that the mind is merely a harmony of the body. He actually goes on as well and says, consider what happens when we surrender our limbs to soothing slumber and our body lies insensible. At the very same time, there's something else in us that it's awake to all kinds of stimuli, something that gives free admittance to the motions of joys and heartaches void of substance. What is he talking about? Having 
having dreams, right? You can dream and your body's just laying there doing nothing. It's not a harmony of the body that's producing it. It's the mind's own activity. And so he, he goes on and he says that let's drop this name harmony passed on, passed down to the musicians from the heights of Helicon or else perhaps they fetched it themselves from some other source and applied it to the matter of their art, which had then no name of its own. And so he's, he's attributing this to the musical people, right? And so he's gotten rid of this idea. The next thing that he has to discuss, and he's trying to affirm this point of view, the mind or the spirit, both together, and the body are material. And they're material really in the same kind of way. They're made of atoms. Of course, the mind slash spirit, the atoms composing that are much finer and, you know, they move around. They're much more mobile, right? But they're ultimately made of atoms just like the body is. And here he says something that, like I said, can be in a little bit of tension with what he, the argument he made against the first idea. So not only can the mind and body be doing different things, they're also closely connected together. So he says the mind actually shares in, Fungi, the body's experiences and it sympathizes is one way of translating it, consentire. It literally senses or feels with the body. So you see where the tension lies. You know, they're distinct from each other in what they're experiencing, but they also do affect each other very closely. And the argument here is, well, unless they were both material, that really wouldn't be possible. So if the mind and spirit was something totally different, some sort of spiritual substance, non-bodily, you couldn't actually get that interaction going in the first place. So are these possible to hold at the same time? I would say yes. It's just picking out different kinds of situations. The third thing that he talks about, and there's a couple things that are figuring into this. So we should think of this as a class of positions that are being attacked and defended. He tells us that neither the body nor the mind on its own possesses sensation. So this is a very interesting idea, right? For Lucretius, the mind and the body are not related to use, you know, Descartes' metaphor, like the pilot in the ship, right? Instead, the mind and the body are essentially, the, the mind is interfused within the body. And it's because of that, that we can actually have sensation. So he's going to give two main arguments here. He's also going to, you know, criticize a little bit later on people who think that like after we die, the body goes down to the underworld and we see and hear and, and smell things. He says that that's not the case. You don't have that capacity like some ghost to see things without eyeballs, right? You have to have the bodily organs. And he says, you know, we do experience bodily sensations, we see through and we feel, you could say, through the body itself. And that is quite important. You know, there's sort of a, he talks about a communal life right? Between the spirit and the body. So he says, it's clear neither body nor mind by itself without the other aids possesses the power of sensation. It's by the interacting motions of the two that the flame of sentience is kindled in our flesh. And he, he also talks about this as like having growth within us. Both the mind and the body are growing as well. So he says, 
If anyone denies the body is sentient and believes it's the spirit interfused throughout the body that assumes this motion we term sensation, he's fighting against manifest facts, open facts, right? Who can explain what bodily sensation really is? If not, if it be not such as is palpably presented to us by experience. You want to know what pain is like? Poke yourself or pinch yourself or something like that. You want to know what it is to look around at things? Well, look around at things with your eyeballs, right? On the other side, though, he says that the body, it's not like the body is this machine that's getting the things and then passing the signals on to the mind, which is a totally separate thing. No, the body's organs, he says, are sort of like windows. He says, it's impossible to maintain the eyes can see nothing, but the mind peeps out through them as though through open doors. The sense of sight itself leads the other way, dra dragging and tugging us right to the eyeballs, right? Often, for instance, we cannot see bright objects because our eyes are dazzled by light. This is an experience unknown to doors or windows. The doorways through which we gaze suffer no distress by being flung open. Besides, if our eyes are equivalent to doors, then when the eyes are removed, the mind obviously ought to see things better now that the doors are away, doorposts and all. That's clearly not the case. Or you have your sinuses burnt or something. Oh, now you'll smell better because there's nothing getting in the way. No, we need both sides, the mind and the body working together in order to have sensation. The last really interesting thing that he's going to consider besides the mind spirit being born and dying, he's criticizing Democritus. And Democritus is somebody who Epicurus took a lot of his theory from, adding a very important contribution of the swerve, but he essentially accepts Democritus's atomic theory. Lucretius says, another error to be avoided, one sanctioned by the revered authority of the great Democritus, is the belief that the limbs are knit together by atoms of body and mind arranged alternately first one than the other, you know, so the primordia, the atoms are arranged alternately singular primus ad posita alternus. And the argument that Lucretius is providing here, it's hard to see exactly how it applies. He says that, in fact, the atoms of spirit are not only much smaller than those composing our body and flesh, they're correspondingly fewer in number and scattered sparsely through our limbs. So he seems to be saying Democritus in the reconstruction of how mind and body are being put together, he's got the wrong model. Instead, the atoms that are composing the mind are very small. There's less of them than there is the body. So it's not like just laying things on top of each other. It's a different way of arranging these in relation to each other. The last thing that he talks about that I would say is criticizing an error, and this actually covers a wide range of things. So we're going to talk about this separately in its positive presentation is the idea that the mind or spirit is immortal or doesn't die or that it was born before the body and then waited to get into the body. And this is, you know, attacking Plato and other people who think that the mind or spirit or soul, whatever it's going to be understood as, essentially predates and precedes the material 
body because it's a different sort of thing. And Lucretius is saying, no, no, it's material. It's born with the body. It dies with the body. It's not exactly the same thing as the body, but it, it is material like the body. And the mind and spirit are essentially interfused through the body with the mind, the rational part, the animus being located primarily in the chest. And then the anima, the rest of the vital spirit is throughout the entire body as well. So these are the mistaken points of view, the errors that Lucretius thinks that many people fall into. We should say one last thing as well. Why is it important from Lucretius's perspective to avoid falling into these mistaken perspectives. It's not just so that you get the theory right. There is actually a practical upshot to it. Believing the wrong things about the nature of our mind or spirit and its relation to the body, therefore what we in fact are as human beings and how we work, is going to lead you to suffering, problems that you don't actually have to have. If you want to have a happy life, you need to get straight about how things actually are and actually work with the mind, the spirit, and the body. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com slash sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works. <laughs>